Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code podcast for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Nailbiter. Nailbiter is a global quantitative video metrics platform using in-the-moment video to capture and code real shopping and consumer behavior in-store, online, and at home. Nailbiter turns these into actionable metrics that are proven at many of the world's leading CPG brands. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy with another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day to share it with us as we discuss cool and interesting things with cool and interesting people. And on that note, I will introduce our guest for today, Katie Swindler, the Innovation Design Strategist Senior Manager at Allstate. Katie, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Lenny. Pleasure to be here. Uh, well, let's see if you still think that when we're done. Um, uh, so far, the feedback has been everybody's been, you know, they've started optimistic and have ended happy. So, all right, so, good. I'm, take it easy on me. That's all I ask. <laughs> <laughs> no problem at all. So, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about you and your background in your role, and we'll go from there into our topic of the day. Sure. Yeah. Um, I have been working as a design strategist of some form or other for probably about 15, 17 years, something like that. Uh, I uh, actually started out not in design at all. I, I was a theater major in college. I was actually in over 40 musicals before I even graduated high school. I was a big theater nerd, did tons of performing growing up and uh, went to school for theater performance changed my major to directing after I figured out that success as an actor basically looks like doing the same show seven times a week. That's basically, that sounded like factory work to me. I liked the creative process, right? Like getting the show up on its feet. And so I switched to a directing major, graduated with that, and then came to Chicago to be doing theater as much as I could and, and to pay the bills because storefront theater in Chicago does not pay the bills. So to pay the bills, I started doing marketing, theater marketing at first, event marketing, web marketing and uh, eventually realized that I was getting a lot of the same sort of satisfaction I got out of creating shows for people. I was, you know, still cre- creative process, a, a group of creative professionals that I was working with. It kind of scratched the itch, so to speak. And so ended up moving just into design, uh, web design, interactive design, and helped grow a startup interactive marketing company for about seven years. I was a COO at 24. So that was cool. <laughs> my my uh, titles have only gone downhill from there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, spent about seven years there building that company up and then really wanted to, you, you know, when you work at a startup, you wear a ton of hats. And I really wanted to focus in on design and, and UX in particular. And so I ended up moving to FCB, an ad agency here in Chicago. Got to work out of the Hancock building. That was really cool. They had the beer fridge and everything. What's cooler than a beer fridge? That's how you know you've made it, apparently. But uh, from there, you know, shifted into, you know, I wanted to get closer to the product work. And so uh, when Allstate recruited me, I, I answered the call and was able to, to join their group and work on products that 
you know, serve customers. You know, insurance kind of has a bad rap, but I, I really believe in the mission at Allstate. You know, you're in good hands, right? Like it's a moment to be able to take care of people and was sometimes one of the worst days of their lives. And so that that mission really spoke to me and a lot of the research and things that I've done for the book, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. But, you know, I was looking at, you know, the stress response and how do you take care of people in stressful situations, things like that. So that's what I've been focusing the last two, three years on really researching that topic, figuring out how to apply it to all sorts of different design situations. Well, as a Allstate customer, by the way, <laughs> uh, Nice. So I, I do appreciate some of the things that I've seen in the past few years of right. a far better user experience in uh, interacting, especially on the online portal, as I've had to unfortunately deal with things here and there. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to assume that you had some influence on that. Yeah. You know, my area of expertise or my area of focus for the first four years at Allstate were, yes, the customer portal. So where you go to pay your bills and, and get your ID cards and those things, the online quoting tool and Allstate.com, like all the content pages that's run by a totally different team than those other two things, which it's all at Allstate.com. So most people don't realize, you know, it's all run by different teams. If you do any sort of claims or if you're using the mobile app, those are also separate teams. I, I work closely with them, but wasn't my work. And then the last year, I got to join the Allstate Innovation team and sort of starting a design practice within their resurrecting a design practice. I, they, it's been there before, but it was, they were just using vendors for a while. But now, you know, I'm growing the team and it's, you know, we are looking at creating new products and services for Allstate, looking at the latest technologies, looking at the latest data science and trying to figure out how can we serve our customers better? How can we, you know, do our work more efficiently so that we can pass those savings on to the client because this is a very competitive market. And so we're always trying to figure out how to make our products more affordable through technology innovations and things. And so, you know, also how to, to serve our customers better and, and give us those competitive edges. So that's a lot of what I've been working on. And sometimes it's stuff that's pretty far outside of what you'd think of as insurance innovations. Like been working really deeply into data privacy and, you know, how can we help consumers keep their data private and take more control of it and those sorts of things. So it's all been really, really interesting work. And I've been, you know, honored and pleased to be able to be a part of it. Oh, that's very cool. And so I guess this is the topic, really is the topic of the day. My two previous calls before recording this for audience, one was with a CPG company talking about the future of insights with them. And a major portion of the conversation was around how changes in culture drive, must drive changes in design so we can engage better with a changing population. Mm -hmm. And you know, putting the consumer first, meeting them where they are and their needs and kind of the rule of thumb that when I think about these things is like we need to decrease barrier to entry, increase usability, and that increases stickiness. Yeah, obviously, that's a very simplistic way to think about it. But as we kind of sum up the importance of design, even for a company like Allstate, does that kind of encapsulate kind of the core business imperative or is there more to it? Yeah, I mean, I, it's really hard to to argue with that statement. I think, you know, you say all, a lot of our work is is around designing for consumers. And I think as an industry, as a country, we are <laughs> expanding 
our idea of what a consumer is. You know, so long that we've used things like personas to help us imagine the consumers that we are designing for. But it does tend to put a singular face on one type of person, right? And even if we're careful about the stock photos that we choose to include, a, you know, a range of what people look like, it still is something that, you know, I, I think a lot about, like, what are we doing as an industry to think about the breadth of who we're designing for? Even each individual you know, use case or user path or user flow or whatever, whatever language your company uses to describe those things. There's so much variation, even within an individual, right? Like a lot of my research and stress talks about, you know, even the same individual, like on Monday, they can use your app fine. And on Wednesday, they've got a crying baby in their arms. They just found out that their husband was laid off. You know what I mean? Like, like, and now it's much harder to use because like their brains just are not working the same as it was on Monday. And so in this world, we need to not just be designing for the breaths of humans, which is very important to expand and keep in mind the breadth of humans we are designing for, but also the breadth of the human experience, right? And how different our days can be one after another or moment to moment even. When we're designing for, you know, a moment where, you know, in, in Allstate, you know, we're, we think about designing for that moment right after a car crash. That is a singular moment. People are in a very specific state of mind. And yet there is a very broad range of human emotions that can happen <laughs> in that moment. But there's also like a lot of complexity that entails, right? Like you got to get safe. You got to get your car towed. You got to get a ride to work. You got to notify people. You got to file your claim. You need all the paperwork. You need photos. You got to get their information. But, like there's so much to deal with in that moment. And thinking about how, how can we better understand that moment of human emotion and design something that reduces the cognitive load as much as possible and supports people so that they can make the most of that moment and, and come out of it relatively unscathed and, and with as little lasting drama, you know, uh, coming out of what is often a really stressful moment. Unfortunately, I was not at IEX Behavior. Uh, and I now I'm really kicking myself for not, uh, <laughs> not doing that because you were and you're, you're already touching on these uh, these ideas around behavioral science and applying those in a very pragmatic way to help create a better experience for people. Yeah. Uh, so for our listeners and for me, since I wasn't able to attend either, talk a little bit about the angle that you took in that presentation. And I've also been told that there was a very specific anecdote that you shared and maybe sum that up as well. And then we'll, we'll build off of that. Sure. Yeah. I, I shared a really fun story about Neil Armstrong. Before he took the very first steps on the moon, he was a fighter pilot for the U.S. Navy in the Korean War. So this is like the 1950s. He's like 22 or something. And he is out flying his jet and he's in a dogfight with the Koreans and half of his right plane wing is sheared off by an anti-aircraft cable. Now, through some truly spectacular flying, he's able to keep his plane in the air. And he gets on the radio with his CEO and they decide what he should do is to fly back towards space. Because he knows that, you know, with half a wing, if he slows down at all, it's really just his speed that's keeping him in the air. If he slows down at all, he's going to go into an uncontrolled roll and crash. And so they're like, okay, well, what you do, you fly back towards space, you eject out over the fields nearby and just let the plane crash into the ocean. And so that is what he does. You know, he just, he, he flies back. And while he is 
flying back towards the base, he realizes that he has only had very basic training in the ejection procedures for the plane that he's currently flying, an F-9F Panther fighter jet. So (laughs) he pulls out the instruction manual. This is a true story. Like it's in his autobiography. He is, you know, flying a broken plane through enemy territory and he stops to read the instruction manual. And he's successful. He he gets there. He ejects successfully. I have a photo of him standing in a rice paddy holding the D-ring from his parachute, looking just so baby-faced. I love the photo. And as a designer, when I heard the story, I actually first heard this story in a picture book about Neil Armstrong. I was reading to my daughter and I was like, is this true? And then like I went and I like dug it up on his autobiography. It is totally true. So, but the thing that I wanted to know as a designer when I heard it was what did the instructions look like? What was their design? And I was actually able to go dig it up. I was able to find a copy online. I'm part of this great group of space nerds on Facebook called Space Hipsters. And they are incredible people. They know everything about the Apollo missions and they can like, they're all like professional archivists. It's amazing. And so they, they helped me dig up a copy of the, of the manual. It's practically a piece of pop art. It's so cool looking. Like it has this really strong diagonal running from the top left corner to the bottom right corner. The top says in all caps, uh, you know, framed, it says reduce airspeed if possible. And then it has a numbered list of the steps you're supposed to take. And with each like step, each step is only, you know, four or five words long, you know, and each step has an accompanying illustration. And it's two-tone printing, right? Because it's like 1950s (laughs) Navy manual. So it's two-tone printing. So it's black and red. And they use the red really beautifully to draw your eye just to the important part of each item. And it, it really follows all of the rules for designing for somebody in a stressful situation or a stressed out state of mind, which is give them a very clear path with a very clear starting point. Start here, right? you know, use a mix of visuals and words, give them a a clear linear steps and, you know, use your visuals sparingly so that you're really drawing them to the the piece of the information that they're, they're supposed to focus on. So yeah, I, I use that as my sort of starter story because it really covers the basis of designing for stress. And honestly, like, like that's the easy part. Like if you have a system (laughs) where you can, you know, reduce it to a singular set of steps and you can give that clear direction and you do that those that's like table stakes stress design like the rest of it is all about all the other complexities like when you have something really complex that you have to have people do like that's that's to me when it gets really interesting because there's there's so much more to understand about you know human behavior and human capacity in those moments and and designing for the rest of them I you know obviously I wrote a whole book on it <laughs> you know that's that's a part of it that I that you know I, I feel like you can really dig into and, and think through oh that's a that's a great story I've never heard that before yeah. I know it's a good one yeah and I'm thinking of all of the non-stressful situations that I've been in that became stressful because really bad design of the of the manuals so yeah yeah that uh, definitely happens yeah ikea comes Mm -hmm. to mind no offense ikea but (laughs) sometimes your instructions are uh, what what am i supposed to do anyway um i i mean one of the reasons it's so frustrating is because they really don't use any words right like the research says the best 
the instructions are a mix of visuals and words. And so, you know, you lose one or the other, you lose visuals or you lose words, and suddenly you're working with half a palette, right? Like half the crayons in the box to get it done right. So it's really not surprising that it's so difficult because they've, they've basically like cut off, you know, half of the tools in their toolkit. So you've mentioned that, that you wrote a book, uh, Life and Death Design. So let's, let's talk about that. Because obviously you have encapsulated an amazing amount of experience and, and information and perspective kind of doing this for, as a job, but also, you know, studying the broader implications of design and what it can really mean across the board. So, well, I'll quit stealing your thunder. Uh, to tell, tell us about the book. Sure. As you mentioned, it's called Life and Death Design. The subtitle is actually What Life-Saving Technology Can Teach Everyday. UX designers. And so it's not just about looking at designing for extreme moments. It's also looking at what can we learn from industries where the intersection of stress and design are incredibly well studied. So I look a lot at aviation, healthcare, the military, those sorts of industries. And I say, okay, well, what can we learn from this for other use cases, you know, for for other industries? Because you know, those are certainly not the only spaces where you have to design for a stressed user, you know, like maybe you're creating products that are meant to be used by a day trader or a customer service rep, right? Like maybe you're doing the software for a customer care center. Maybe you are designing like, you know, like I mentioned at Allstate, maybe you're designing for a moment directly following a stressful event, like a car accident, or maybe you're just Designing something that shouldn't be stressful at all, but people are coming to you in a stressed out state of mind just because of the world that we live in today or, you know, any any other number of reasons why why people might be stressed out. And so when when we look at how stress changes us, and it does, it changes the way we move, right? It changes the way we think, we behave. And most importantly for UX designers, I feel it it changes the decisions that are made. It changes how we make our decisions and the decisions that we do make. And so to understand that, because a lot of what UX designers are doing are trying to drive human behavior, to change it, to modify it, to help people get someplace or help your company sell something, right? And so by understanding the changes that happen, we can better create paths that will keep people on the right track, no matter sort of what, what state of mind that they're currently in. We're going to take a quick pause to highlight our podcast partner, Nailbiter. If you didn't know, Nailbiter is one of the fastest risers on our annual Grit Top 50 Most Innovative Suppliers list with a unique platform delivering quantitative behavioral video metrics. Those metrics help inform some of the most important business questions their CPG clients have within a diverse range of consumer and shopper research areas. Speaking of diversity, within the Grit Top 15, Nailbiter is the only supplier with a female CEO and is the only certified minority business enterprise supplier by the NMSDC. So you incorporate what I would fundamentally call kind of system one, system two uh, thinking. And, you know, there's a quote, when humans are stressed, they instinctively fall back on intuition-based decision-making, which has a lot of benefits, but can also open the door for harmful biases to creep in. Yeah. Which obviously is a true statement. Uh, I think we can all look back and say, yeah, I was stressed out and I probably shouldn't have done that. But, you know, that's uh, that's seemed like the right thing at the time. Yeah. So there is so much information now, so much understanding 
of human behavior and the drivers of behavior. How do you funnel that in to find the essence of what's important from a design perspective? One of the things that I think is helpful, because you're right, like we have, as humans, we have so many different you know, biological drivers and, and urges, you know, and things that we worry about and things that we want and, and things that motivate us. Cortisol, which is the primary neurochemical that's released during the stress response, it's a very specific driver. And it has some very predictable things that it does to the human brain. The first thing that it does is it drives you to make faster decisions so that you can get out of whatever emergency situation you know your amygdala has detected that you are in right so so it's it's driving faster decisions but that does mean that those decisions will be less well considered it pushes people towards black and white thinking which means that they're going to be less creative and it also will respond much better to either or statements right as opposed to complex statements or statements open-ended statements it makes it harder for people to learn new things. So falling back on the familiar is very important. It makes it harder for people to retain the things that they do learn in that moment. So repetition and callbacks are also very important. And it also increases aggression, which makes people you know, less patient, less willing to listen to reason. And specifically in ways that if ideas are coming from people who they consider to be outside of their personal tribe, right? Like if they don't identify with that person or they feel like if they're an other in any way, right? You know, Democrat versus Republican or, you know, whatever it is, like, right? Like there's so many different ways that we other each other. If we sense that at all, like that, that triggers our aggression and our unwillingness to listen to the person at that time. So all of these things, you know, we can take into account. You can use language like we language and things. You can, you know, use statements to to make sure that people feel like you are on their side, you know, to sort of de-escalate some of those aggressive feelings as well. So those are some examples of, you know, cause and, and solution, <laughs> if you will, you know, like at kind of a, of a broad level. But, you know, there's two types of biases that I think about that come forward in stressful situations when we are falling back as Daniel Kahneman and thinking fast and slow, he, he refers to system one and system two. I think that's what you're talking about. I, you know, don't want to steal too much from Kahneman. I, I like to use plain language. So, you know, I call them intuition and logic and reason, right? Intuition, that's what runs 90% of our day, right? Like I don't make a decision to get up out of bed, right? Like I just do it. I mean, I did make a decision. To, you know, if you go back and you think about it, I made a decision, but it doesn't feel like I'm making a decision because it's all subconscious. And then I brush my teeth and then I took a shower and blah, 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 right? Like those are all things that are just kind of running in the background. When you drive from one place to another and you realize that you got there and you have no memory of how you, like what path you took or, you know, like, someplace that you've been a hundred times before, you're running basically on intuition at that point. It's all subconscious actions and flows that you're taking. System two kicks in when you need to think about something, when you need to be analytical. System one will tell you, oh, you know, string A is longer than string B. But as soon as you want to know, well, how much longer you have to kick in system two, right? Get that analytical thing going on. So logic and reason and intuition. So when we're running on intuition, intuition is great. It's incredibly efficient. We literally burn less calories when we're running on intuition because we aren't thinking as hard as a system two. And so the human body is, and evolution is very efficient. And so as much as we can, we, we rely on those intuition actions. But there are shortcuts that we're using as part of them. And those shortcuts can get us in trouble. They can get us personally in trouble with things like 
you know, all the, the biases that have been studied, especially by Kahneman, you know, over the last 10, 20 years. Uh, one example of many things like the anchoring effect, right? Like if somebody says, how much do you think this car is worth? I think it's worth $1,000, right? Then your number is going to be closer to $1,000 than it would have been if you had said it without them anchoring you to a specific price, right? That's just one example of bias that is going to affect you personally, right? <laughs> like that's, that's your bias that you're, that's uh, a harmful effect for you. And then, of course, there's the harmful stereotypes and things of other humans, right? Those are the sort of harmful biases that, you know, usually if we're taking like a corporate training on bias, you know, harmful biases, we're talking about those sorts of things, you know, gender norms, you know, racial stereotypes, all of those sorts of things that just kind of box humans. And humans are just too complex to, to be able to rely on those sorts of pattern-based intuitions that we've built. You know, you can't reliably predict people, especially far into the future or somebody that you don't know very well. It's, it's very hard to make reliable predictions in that way. So does that pose a challenge from a design standpoint? So, you know, when I read Kahneman, kind of my, you say efficiency, I say laziness, mm -hmm. right? We're just hardwired for the least amount of effort. So yeah. uh, to, you know, these decisions, I don't want to have cognitive load. I've got other things to deal with, you know, so this part of my brain is just it kind of autopilot, you know, do these things. And that saves energy for those times when, you know, we need to cognitively go through things. Certainly from, there's huge implications for that from a research standpoint, you know, mm -hmm. how do we write questionnaires or, you know, that the engage from moderator standpoint in uh, conversations with people of trying not to create too much cognitive load for folks. But, you know, from a design, if I think about a product perspective, and to your point that everyone has their own flavor, their own unique mm -hmm. flavor, right, of of biases and different drivers that impact that decision-making that make it difficult to predict, even though we have this broad framework to think about. And that framework has, I would argue, has been pretty universally accepted as true, but the minutia is so, so all over the place that you know, it, it is difficult to do anything that is the perfect design to account for all situations. So first, do you, do you agree that that's a, a challenge? Yes. I mean, I think as designers, it is our job to widen the scope as much as possible and then pull people in to, you know, whatever the best possible path forward is, but to start very wide, right? Like a lot of inclusive design is about including the most number of people possible, right? And thinking about not just, you know, accommodating somebody with a disability or somebody who is, you know, in the, some extreme situation, but, you know, accommodating a really wide block of the population as much as possible. You know, the, the, I think Microsoft released their inclusive design pamphlet and they had a great example in it of like, sure, you know, there's only 100,000 people with missing hands in America, you know, or in the world or whatever. But, you know, if you think about all the people who have a broken arm or a broken hand, you know, they also are using your app one-handed. And if you include all the people who are also holding something like a squirming child in that hand, then, you know, they also need to use your app one-handed. So once you start designing inclusively, you're really broadening not just the number of people, but the number of situations in which your app and, and conditions under which your app is is usable. So I, th I think that's a really nice way to think about it. And I, and I think it's applicable for stress as well, right? Like 
sure, you know, we, we talk about fight, flight, or freeze response, right? And it's actually incredibly difficult to predict what an individual will do, whether they will fight, whether they will flee, or whether they will freeze. Incredibly difficult to predict. Uh, there are some factors, but it, it's it's really unreliable. And and so what you got to do is you got to design for it all, right? Like you you, you got to widen your scope, and know the things that will help in that situation. Luckily, the same thing helps all three situations, giving them a clear place to start, right? Like that was what we said with the Armstrong story at the beginning, right? Like give them a clear place to start and a linear place to go because it it helps snap them back out of that fight or flight reaction. So it's just kind of knowing and capturing and knowing how to deal with it and broadening it as much as possible. That's kind of how I think about it. It's a very cool example. It's powerful with a lot of implications. And I'm glad you brought up Microsoft. I was talking about them earlier, that CPG company. You know, they've they've leaned into that concept of if you can capture the the outliers, you'll get the non-outliers by default. Exactly. Yeah. If a stressed person can use your design, anyone can use it. You know, it, it's like if you design for that, you know, so if you go all the way there, it, it's only going to make your design easier to use for everybody who uses it. Yeah. So I want to step back just for, for a minute and think about, so we've seen from, from the research industry perspective, a bit of a fragmentation that was happening for a while where there was it's called insights and then CX and UX and all these X's, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of spun off. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was organizationally, which makes sense from if you're a company like Allstate, I, I assume that, you know, well, yes, you need somebody to pay attention to customer experience and to product and user experience and to insights as a whole. Although from a, a practice perspective, I would consider them all dimensions of the same thing. So they are all insight functions, even though they may be focused on a, a specific end result or use case for insights. What tools or methodologies have you found most useful in your specific area of focus on designing products and services to appeal to the best, you know, to the largest possible group? So I think it's important to have a mix of quant and qual, you know, quantitative and qualitative research. I, I think you have to really carefully balance it. I, unfortunately, as you've said, as our industry has become bifurcated, people tend to specialize in one or the other and tend to get real strong opinions about which one's better. And for me, I'm, <laughs> I like walk down the center of that road. I really think that you have to have both. You have to understand the quant is going to, you know, help you understand the different segments and the sizes of the different segments that you're designing for. It'll under, help you understand, you know, the number of people. But the qual is very important because there are, you know, there are user groups within each segment that have very unique experiences that are not going to show up in mass amounts of data. For instance. If somebody is pulled over by the police and they need to give them their ID card, you know, and it's now on their phone because, you know, their insurance ID card has now moved on to a, a phone app. And then they have to hand that police officer their phone in that moment. That is a very different experience for a certain segment of the population whose relationship with the police is sometimes very rocky, especially in, in the United States, right? And so that can be a very different experience for one person versus another. It's no big deal, you know, for me. 
you know, Midwest like white lady, right? Like, like it's not a big deal for me to, to hand my phone over in that moment. That can be a completely different experience for somebody else with a different relationship with the police. And so, you know, that will not come out in a quant survey, right? You have to talk to people to understand those moments and to get the, to find those stories and to start thinking about your product in those ways. Now, where the quant is very important is to cast wide nets to to find the data. And then, you know, once you get the qual stories, then you can start slicing and dicing and figure out, okay, you know, what segment uses it and where are they using it? And how can we aim interventions at those groups? You know what I mean? Like, like the, you have to have both sides of it, but you can't go all the way one or the other because, you know, there's other stories that you might miss or you won't know who to, which groups to talk to until you start looking at who is using it through that quant information, right? Like there's big portions of it that, that's very important as well. Well, and of course, I, I would assume there's also behavioral data from usability testing. Exactly. Yeah. So as you get to that phase of, okay, now let's see how people really <laughs> are, yeah. are using it kind of in situ. So Yeah. Lots of times people will ask me, how do you test for these extreme situations? How do you test people in stressed out state of minds? And it's actually something that requires a lot of thought because, you know, as researchers, I think, you know, our industry and our folks were coming to realize like, you know, there, there needs to be ethics around the, the research that we do, right? And like stressing somebody out or even asking them to recount past traumas, like you gotta, you gotta really have a good reason to do that. And you got to prepare people and you got to screen for people with, you know, mental health issues and all sorts of things, right? Like, so that you aren't re-traumatizing the participants who are getting what, like a $10 gift card, maybe a hundred, you know what I mean? Like, like that, that's not appropriate, you know, like, and, and the, the cost benefit has to be there as well. Like it maybe is worth it if you are designing specifically for a population that has high rates of it and you need to make sure that you're, product isn't going to be re-triggering them, right? So like there are times when it's appropriate, there's methods that you can do it. But in general, one of the more fun ideas that I heard for testing products came from a group that did device design for medical professionals to use in war zones. And one of the methods that they would use is they would pump the sound of real battles into the speaker overhead, they had a OR room, like a fake OR room set up with, you know, cameras on all sides. And they bring in the medical professionals to try to use these devices and they pump the sound in. Sound is incredibly powerful way to trigger an emotional response from somebody in a fairly safe way, given they, you know, don't have, uh, you know, too many additional traumas that they're dealing with. But it can really, you know, trigger a powerful emotional reaction, get somebody in that head state space, stress them out in a way that's not dangerous so that you can see, you know, how your items perform under stressful situations. So that's, that's a trick that I actually haven't had a chance to, to try out myself, but, you know, I think there's a lot of potential there for using that for, for different scenarios. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when we have go from crash test dummies to robots, you know, yeah. that then maybe you could duplicate that in uh yeah. <laughs> or avatars of somebody guiding a robot. Maybe that's the best way to do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this is really a fascinating topic and one that we don't talk about enough in the industry. And I think what, again, it comes down to the idea that if the goal of insights is to help our customers sell more stuff, and I think in the essence, that's what it is. 
and whether that stuff is a product or a concept or an idea or a campaign, right? We can, can vary there. It all comes down to design. And we need to understand how to optimize not just the research design and the experience for the consumer, but bake that, that human, fundamental human understanding into the design process of the final product to, again, whatever that is. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation. So with that in mind, if, if you would agree with me, and I expect that you do. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. <laughs> what final words of wisdom would you encapsulate to give to the audience on the importance of thinking about design, not as a, as a checkbox, oh yes, we did our UX testing, but to become a philosophical underpinning of the organization as a whole? Yeah, I think just really keeping the human condition in mind and designing for the widest number of people possible, right? Having a specific persona does help for empathy, but having that persona develops a lot of empathy, but having it where you can also diverge your thinking, right? Like, and think of what are all of the ways, what are all of the situations? Where might somebody be when they find out something's gone wrong. What are all the things that can go wrong and where might they be in that moment and where would they turn first, you know? So thinking about that expansion is I think really incredibly important and then picking some things on those far edges to make sure are part of your design set as you are also designing for those really clear personas. You know, I think it's important to just like, you know, I'm like you got the quant and the qual, right? You've got the divergent thinking and the convergent thinking, the the specifics and the broad. So that's probably, you know, philosophically how I would recommend approaching design around this topic. And any resources you could point folks towards for inspiration, maybe what the things that inspire you? Yeah. One book I always like to recommend, a uh, fellow author, she her name's Ava Penzimog. And she wrote a book called Design for Safety. So if you like my book, you'll probably love her book as well. She digs into the topic in a slightly different way. She looks at how to think about your designs in ways that will keep the users safe. So she's done a lot of research on partner abuse through technology. So things like think about, you know, maybe you share an account with a partner And when you're living together and things are great, that's awesome. But then, you know, if the relationship starts to go sideways, that person, if they are an abuser, can use that technology to control you. They, you know, gathered examples of people, you know, shutting off account access or changing the temperature in their house. I mean, like classic gaslighting stuff, you know, and they don't, or, you know, shutting their heat off in the middle of winter and their pipes burst, you know, just causing problems for them because the technology has been set up, assuming that all the users have the best of intentions when that unfortunately is not always the case. And there's some people that will suffer because of that if the proper safety protocols aren't put into place in order to protect the different users of the accounts. So, you know, she thinks a lot about that part of it. You know, I I really focus on stress and and she tends to look a little bit more at like exploitation and and abuse cases, Uh, but it's all really fascinating stuff. I always learn a lot when I talk with her and I always highly recommend her book, which is called Design for Safety. Yeah, we can go off on a whole other tangent Mm -hmm. there. Uh, Let's save that for the next time. So we love shameless plugs. So (laughs) 
So please, where can people find your book? Thank you. Yes. If you want to learn about the topic in general, me in general, you can go to lifeanddeathdesign.com. And I've got information about my book, workshops I teach, speaking, if you want to bring me out to speak to your organization or event. And then also, you know, buy the book. You can get it on rosenfeldmedia.com. Rosenfeldmedia.com is my publisher. Use Katie15, K-A-T-I-E-1-5 for a 15% off discount. Uh, That's my personal uh, discount code. I'll throw it out there. Or if you, you know, prefer Amazon, you want it on your Kindle or whatever, like it's on Amazon and most of the major book publications, Apple Books, all of that kind of stuff if you're an e-reader. But it's a beautiful book, full color, lots of pictures and examples, visual examples, you know, mix of words and, and pictures, right? So, and it and it's beautifully put together. I've got illustrations from a good friend of mine, a comic book artist named Brian Crowley. He did original illustrations for it, comic book style illustrations. So it's really fun. It's a beautiful book and I would be delighted if you'd read it and reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm eminently findable. Katie Swindler, Allstate, which should should pull me right up on on the LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter at Katie Swindler UX. That's fantastic. So you and you know you you anticipated where I was going to go next. So <laughs> definitely the hallmark of a great UX researcher. You know it, <laughs> <laughs> Katie. This has been great. Certainly appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today and share those insights and experience. Our audience, I absolutely encourage you to please follow up with uh, on Katie's website and the book. My sense is that where we've been kind of fragmented as an industry that is ending and we're moving towards a much more holistic view of insights as a whole with design and user experience being central to that view. So the information that you're sharing and your experience, I I think it will just become more and more important overall. So. All right. Well, thanks so much again, Lenny, for having me on. It's been a delight to talk with you today and I hope we can reconnect soon. I hope so too. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. We appreciate you taking the time today. I want to give a good shout out to our producer, Natalie, our editor, James, our sponsor, Nailbiter. And one more time to you, our listeners, because without you, this would just be Katie and I having a cool conversation, which is great. But, you know, I think it's better to share because sharing is good karma. So thank you for letting us produce good karma today. And that's it for now. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Green Book Podcast. Bye-bye. Join Green Book for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.